0: The prophets. All the prophets includes who? Obadiah. And he refers to these prophets as what? Scriptures. The very words of God. That, that, that Obadiah is not only speaking the word of God, but he is speaking about Jesus. Because all of the prophets, he says, ultimately are concerned with him and speak to who he is and what he's done for us. And so even when we come to a really obscure part of the Bible, um, we remind ourselves That that all of scripture is God-breathed. That all of scripture is God's words to us. And we believe that there's actually something that God wants to say to us today through the prophet Obadiah. And so with that very lengthy introduction on how God reveals himself to us, let me suggest uh, two messages that I think God may want to speak to us today through the prophet Obadiah. First, he speaks a warning to our pride and secondly, a great hope for our future. A warning to our pride and a great hope for our future. Here's verse three in Obadiah. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Now, God here is speaking to the ancient nation known as Edom. In case you need a refresher on your biblical geography, uh, the Edomites were the Israelites' neighbors just across the Dead Sea. And they lived in a terrain that was very mountainous, that was very rocky, it was very rugged, and that meant that it was easy to defend. It was like a fortress, It's a very defendable place for them to live, and along with that, the Edomites were very wealthy. They had a very lucrative copper mining and smelting business, and they lived along what was known as the King's Highway. It was a a passable um, road if you wanted to trade between the different continents, and so they could charge tolls on anybody who was passing through that way for trade. And so they were very wealthy. And then lastly, they had a really powerful friend. They had a really powerful ally called the Babylonian Empire. It's the most powerful empire the world had ever known to that point in history. And in their security, in their very defendable location, and in their great wealth, and in their powerful ally, God says their hearts had begun to grow proud, to be filled with pride. Now, there are multiple words for pride in the Hebrew language, in the Old Testament. The most frequently used um, refers to, you could define it as a sort of pride that you could define as like like majesty, beauty, glory. So if you you take pride in your good looks, or if you take pride in your great talent, or if you take pride in your your, your massive wealth, that would be a sort of pride, um, for sure, that the Bible speaks of often, but that's actually not the kind of pride uh, that... Obadiah is speaking to here. This is a word that's not used very often uh, in the Old Testament, but this kind of pride uh, you could define as a sort of arrogance. It's it's the pride where you have this, this false confidence, this confidence that, as he puts it, deceives you into thinking that you're invincible, that you're untouchable, to think nothing is going to happen to me. No harm is going to come my way. The, the problems that impact and affect the lives of other people won't be able to touch me. That's the kind of pride that Obadiah is speaking to here. You know, I was, I was talking to uh, one of my friends, a member of this church recently, and we, we were both saying um, that we, we can struggle with this kind of pride uh, when it comes to the way that we both relate to money. You know, people relate differently to money. Um, For some people, it's more, you know, money's an issue with pride when it comes to your your significance. Money's a way to kind of show off, to show people how great you are because of the things you can buy or own or do. That's one way people can take pride in the way they use or relate to money. But the other way is to, to really see money as a source of safety, as a source of security. Um, Paul speaks to this, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. There he says, says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant and to put their hope in wealth. Now why does he pair those two together, arrogance and putting your hope in wealth? And and I think he pairs those two together because if 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 you're looking at your money in a way where you're putting your hope in your money and you're thinking to yourself, okay, as long as I can save enough money, as long as I can put enough money away, or as long as I can be a good enough budgeter in the way that I handle my expenses so that I'm not spending more than I'm making, well then, therefore, if something bad happens to me, Right? If, if maybe there's an unexpected expense, or maybe if I were to lose my job, or maybe if I had a health issue and those bills would be really expensive, I'd be okay. It wouldn't impact me, it wouldn't affect me the way that other people would be affected. To put your hope in wealth, Paul says, is actually a form of arrogance, because you're thinking, I'm going to be safe, I'm going to be secure, because I have this wealth. But that's a form of delusion, right? Your pride is deceiving your heart because the reality is that even the safest investments, FDIC insured, right? The government could default on its debt. That almost happened recently. There could be a crash of the stock market. And even if your investments don't go south, you could find out tomorrow that you are sick. You could find out you only have a short period of time to live and your your money can do nothing to protect you, to keep you safe. And what, what, what pride does, this form of pride, is it, is it deceives your heart into a false confidence to thinking that you are safe, to thinking that you can save or protect yourself, thinking you're safer than you are, thinking you're smarter than you are, that you know more than you do. Anybody ever been criticized before and you actually found it helpful? Somebody challenged one of your perspectives. They challenged how you were behaving, a way that you were thinking, and you, you learned from it. Gosh, that's a helpful insight. That happened to me recently. Um, in, in a meeting, somebody shared a, a perspective that I hadn't thought about before. And initially, you know, it doesn't always feel great initially when your perspective is challenged. But, but, but as I thought about it afterwards, I thought, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way. That's a really good perspective. I needed to hear that perspective and what's more, I actually think it exposed a, a, a place in my heart where I was proud. I was taking pride in, in perceived success of our church. And, and for me, that criticism was really helpful. But but when you're when you're filled with pride, you can't receive that. You're unteachable. You can't grow as a person. You say, Who are you to tell me what to do and how I should be living? Who are you to give me advice? I don't need that? And you see, pride is this this posture of the heart that that believes that we can save ourselves, that we're smart enough, that we're good enough, that we're powerful enough to take care of ourselves really apart from God. But Lewis Smedes, uh, the theologian, puts it this way. He says, pride in the spiritual sense is a refusal to let God be God. It's turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator. Independent, reliant on your own resources, and that is the greatest delusion, the delusional fantasy of all fantasies. That pride, it it deceives our hearts. Now, what's so bad about that? What's wrong with that? Well, I think the answer is that 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 kind of arrogance that God calls out in the Edomites uh, ultimately will be destructive uh, to us in in at least two ways that we see with the Edomites. Here they are first. Uh, That kind of pride, it robs us of our humanity. It robs us of our ability to really have relationships and to come alongside others, especially in their pain. You know, I don't know if any of you know this, but the Edomites and the Israelites were actually related. You had to go a little bit far back on the family tree to get there, but they were both descended from the family of Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. The Israelites were descended from Jacob. The Edomites were descended from Esau. Now, to be fair, there was quite a bit of tension even going back to Jacob and Esau, that ran throughout family history. They probably didn't want to sit with each other at family reunions, but I'll tell you, the moment that their familiar bond was, was, was totally shattered was the moment when the Babylonian Empire came to conquer and destroy the Israelite capital of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And in that moment, as they came to to utterly plunder and ravage and destroy the Israelites, you want to know what the Edomites did? Uh, Verse 11, Obadiah says this. He said that that Edom, they were aloof. They, They looked on with indifference at the pain that was coming upon their relatives, the Israelites. More than that, verse 12 says that they gloated over their brother, in the day of his misfortune and rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Rather than be moved to compassion, they actually gloated, they rejoiced in the suffering that was coming on the Israelites. And you know, you're never more human than when you're filled with compassion for another person. It's one of the things that differentiates us as humans from the rest of the animal kingdom is our ability to really put yourself in someone else's shoes, to try to come alongside them, to identify with them, to empathize with them. It's one of the reasons why, you know, if you look at like a, like a serial killer and, and, and profilers will notice they've, they've become so hardened, so unable to feel the pain of other people. And, and what pride does, what this arrogance does is it, is it disconnects you from others, it robs you of your humanity so that the Edomites are unable to, to even show any compassion for the Israelites in their pain. It robs you of your humanity, and what's more, pride will, will deceive you into thinking that you'll never experience the consequences of your sin. That your sin will never find you out, that it will never catch up to you, that the the the, the reap what you sow, fabric of the universe doesn't actually apply to you. So if you cheat on your taxes, you won't get audited. If you lie to your boss, you won't get caught. If you're looking at porn, your, your, your spouse won't find out. And even if you do get caught, the consequences won't be bad for you. You've got enough friends. You've got enough network. You've got good lawyers. You've got good resources. You'll be able to avoid the consequences for that sin in some way. And you see, that's what the the Edomites thought to themselves. You know what they did is they they didn't just sit back in indifference. Actually, they got in on the act. Verses 13 and 14 says what they did is after the Babylonians plundered the Israelites, they swooped in and they stole and plundered and looted whatever was left in Jerusalem. And what's more is as the Israelites tried to flee for their lives, what they did is they rounded up all of the, 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 the people who were fleeing And they they sold them to the Babylonians uh, for profit. And they thought to themselves, because the Babylonians are our ally, because they are our friends, because we live in this really secure location, we have all this wealth, we won't have to pay for our sin. The consequences of what we've done, they won't catch up to us. And you know what God says to them? Verse seven, he says, if you think you're invincible because of your alliance with Babylon, He says, your allies will force you to the border and your friends will deceive and overpower you. He says, you think you're safe because of your riches? Your hidden treasures will be pillaged. You think you're untouchable because of your fortress location? Though you make your nest among the stars, I will bring you down. God says, no matter how invincible you may feel, your sin will catch up to you. You will be held accountable for it. And then there's this shift. There's a shift that happens in verses 15 and 16 of Obadiah. A shift where suddenly he goes from speaking about this little obscure nation of Edom, and now he's talking about everyone. Now he's talking about all nations. Look at this, verses 15 and 16. He says, the day of the Lord is near upon who? All the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been, drinking to destruction. And suddenly now he's speaking not just of Edom, but he's speaking to people of all nations that every person who's ever lived will be held accountable before God. And you know what's interesting is, you know the word Edom in Hebrew, and the word Adam, the name Adam? It's the same Hebrew letters. It's the same spelling, and, and, and what, what most commentators think is that what, what Obadiah is doing in, in speaking to this little nation of Edom, he's actually, he's actually lifting up Edom as an example for all humanity. The word Adam means humanity. He's lifting up Edom as an example. He's saying this this is what's going to happen to everyone who in the pride of their heart determines that they want to essentially be their own God. He's saying this, this is a message for all of humanity, that we'll all be held accountable to God for seeking to live as our own God apart from him. You know, there's there's part of me, when I read these two verses, I wonder, I don't know, please hear that, I don't know this. I wonder, though, if when Jesus was on that walk with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he was trying to, to explain to them who were so confused about why would Israel's Messiah have to die. They didn't get that. They didn't expect that. They didn't think the Messiah would die, did they? They thought that the Messiah was going to come and and, and go after God's enemies, people like the Edomites, people like the Romans. They didn't understand why would the Messiah have to die. I wonder if maybe when Jesus got to Obadiah among the prophets, maybe he went to verses 15 and 16. Maybe he went back to this picture of all nations having to to drink the cup, to drink cup as though they did not exist, to drink unto the point of destruction. And did he use that to explain to them why it was necessary for him to die for their sin too? To explain to them that they also, even as his people, were full of pride and a desire to essentially be their own God, that pride that is deserving of God's judgment. And what is that judgment? It's to be, to be cut off from God's good presence, to drink to the point as being no more. And you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to his Father right before he went to the cross, what did he pray? He said, Father, take this cup from me. What was he talking about? He was talking about the cup of which Obadiah is speaking to drink the cup of God's judgment, to drink the cup of God's wrath. That's what made the cross so horrific for Jesus. It wasn't just the physical pain. It was whatever it meant for him to take all of God's just judgment upon himself for our sin. To drink to the point of destruction as to be no more. And yet, why did Jesus do that? Why did he do that? He did that For us, he did that to rescue us, he did that to save us. You know, um, James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That is, anybody who is humble enough to say, You know what? I'm not my own God, I'm not invincible, I can't protect myself, I can't save myself. I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, and instead, Jesus, I look to you. I trust you to be my savior. Jesus, you who drank the cup of God's wrath for me. When you do that, not only does God forgive you, not only can you know how much he loves you, that he would be willing to do that for you, but you can know that your future is not gonna be one of <clears throat> destruction, but it's gonna be one of great great hope. And that's the second and final message that God gives through the prophet Obadiah, that we have, as God's people, a great hope for our future, that we know a wonderful ending where our story is headed. God says to the the people of Israel who are reeling in the wake of the destruction of their homeland, of their capital city, he says to them, even though Jerusalem has been torn completely to the ground, He says, one day, I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem. There's going to be a new Jerusalem, and though your people are scattered as exiles, I'm going to bring them back to the city of God. He says, even though right now you have seen the temple, the symbol of God's presence, absolutely flattened and destroyed, he says, my people are going to dwell in my presence again. And he says, even though right now it feels like everything is going wrong in the world, he says, one day, one day, my people are going to return to their home. They're going to return to their inheritance. And he says, a Savior will go up on Mount Zion, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. What's he describing here? What is this future? He's talking about at the end of history, this great day when, 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 as John pictures it, this new Jerusalem will come down from heaven, the city of God, and his people will dwell in God's presence forever in a world that is renewed and restored from all the effects of sin, and everything will be right. The kingdom will be the Lord's. That's the future that awaits us. And, and listen, I, I don't know what your circumstances are today. I don't know the hardship that you're facing, and, and maybe... Maybe you haven't looked on as your homeland was burned to the ground. Maybe you haven't seen people that you love killed before your eyes like the Israelites did. Maybe you haven't experienced what it is to be betrayed by a nation that you thought would come to your defense. And all the things that you had built up and acquired, stolen and taken away from you in a moment but I imagine some of you sit here today and you do know what it feels like for somebody to betray your trust, for somebody to let you down, somebody that you thought that you could rely on and depend on to betray you, to have things that you love taken from you, to grieve the loss of loved ones. And the message, I think, that God wants to speak to us through the prophet Obadiah is that no matter how bleak your story might feel today, We know where our story is headed. We know the future that awaits us. We know that God is going to make all things right in this world. We know that he has a good and perfect plan for us. We know that that ultimate victory is assured. You know, one of the bleakest times in human history was World War II. People wondered if the whole world was going to be destroyed. The British certainly worried if their little island nation was going to be destroyed. And, you know, the leaders of of, of the the British people during that time, they would go and strategize in a a little um, room in what was known as the Whitehall Basement. Today, it's known as Churchill's War Room. And, you know, whenever they would go into that room, there was a sign posted really clearly on the wall, and it said this. It said, please understand, there is no depression in this house, for we are not interested in possibilities of defeat. They do not exist. I think in many ways, even amidst the brokenness and the pain that are very real still in our world, that is a banner that you could put over your life as a Christian. Because you know that there are no possibilities of defeat. You know that victory is assured. You know where your story is headed. You know the good and perfect future that awaits you. That inheritance and that fully renewed and restored world in which we will dwell in the presence of God and all will be right for the kingdom will be the Lord's. And So let's pray as we come to the Lord's table together this morning. Father, we thank you that the words that we read in scripture, even in unfamiliar and obscure places are not just the words of men, but that they are the very words of God, inspired by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that through your spirit then, you would speak to us through your word this morning. Father, I don't know all of the circumstances that are represented here in this room, but you do. Lord, I pray that you would use your word then to convict us of our pride, to humble us, to bring us to that place where even as we approach the Lord's table this morning, we would do so with an ability to look to Jesus as the one who alone can save, to stop pretending and deluding our hearts into believing that we can be our own God and instead to look to him to be our savior, to be our God, to be the forgiver of our sins, the one who took your judgment for us so that we could know only your love and your favor and a bright hope and future. I pray for everybody in this room today who just needs that extra encouragement to fix their eyes not on their current circumstances but on the future hope you have secured for us in Christ. I pray that that reality would become a little more real and vivid to their hearts today. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen.